0: Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. He's America's most recognized and respected frontline travel news journalist. And in this podcast, Peter Greenberg holds in-depth interviews with travel industry insiders, giving listeners practical news they can use on topics ranging from the shrinking carry-on luggage allowances to traveling through the Middle East. This is the CBS Travel Hour
1: with Peter Greenberg. I'm Peter Greenberg, and welcome to the CBS Radio Travel Hour. On this edition, we're going to talk about airfares. We're going to talk about driverless cars and trucks, and what's ahead in the new administration of 2017 when it comes to travel, transportation, airplanes, trains, automobiles. Is it going to be a bad Steve Martin movie? We'll find out. First up, let's talk about airfares. It's crazy out there. Um, The actual airfare between New York and Boston right now on the Delta Shuttle is about $609. Same for New York to Washington, D.C. Want to go to New York to Lisbon, $545. As recently as three weeks ago, New York to Hong Kong, $505. Which, it's so counterintuitive to the way we think in terms of how you price an airline ticket. For example, if you asked me if I would drive you from Los Angeles to Burbank... I might say I'll charge you $30. If you ask me if I would drive you from Los Angeles to San Francisco, I might charge you $300. This is exactly the reverse. Los Angeles to Burbank is $300 and Los Angeles to San Francisco is 30. It makes no sense in terms of fuel consumption, wear and tear, length, I mean, craziness. Now, what does that mean to you? It's a buyer's market if you're smart. Because let's go back to that New York Boston airfare comparison. First of all, even though the flight is only 38 minutes long, right? even though the flight's 38 minutes long, it's going out of LaGuardia, which means it's 38 hours long. That's number one. Number two, you factor in the time it takes you to get to the airport, go through security, and then go to where you need to go once you get to Boston or Washington DC, versus how much does it cost to take the train? Now, Amtrak has the Acela, which is America's poorest excuse for high-speed rail. It only gets up to 86 miles an hour for about 27 miles. If it went 28 miles, it would derail. That's how bad the tracks are. And they want 300 bucks. So how about the Northeast Regional Train? All right, that gets in about 28 minutes after seller. Again, my argument about how much does that mean it's high speed, it's about $154. And then there's the fastest growing form of transportation in America, the bus. It's as little as $40 round trip. That's almost a 30 to 1 fair differential between the flight and the bus. And if you actually factor in how long it takes you to get to the airport and go through all those other stress factors versus just getting on the bus, which, by the way, these days, buses have Wi-Fi and leather seats and lounges. It's a wash. It's, it, it, it's, it's, a, not even, it's, it's a no argument deal. OK, now, that's why it's a buyer's market for you now in terms of international flights, thanks to Brexit the power of the US dollar against many foreign currencies, guess what? That's why you're seeing airfares of $545 transatlantic or $505 New York to Hong Kong, outrageous, unheard of. You're also seeing something else. As the United States starts to lose so much air service domestically, as airlines restrict capacity and go for longer range, higher yield markets, you're seeing some of these disruptor airlines come in and offer nonstop long haul service to airports that are not being well served on the domestic cities. So, for example, how about Zurich to Las Vegas nonstop? You can do it now on an airline called Edelweiss. Dubai to Fort Lauderdale? Yep, Emirates is doing it nonstop. And this goes on and on and on. You're going to see flights from New Orleans to London now, nonstop. It's going to be great. You can fly to Europe, if you don't mind stopping, in Iceland, on airlines like WOW and Iceland Air at fares of only about $99 just to Iceland and then another 100 bucks to Europe. This is the time to do that. Uh, it's not about seasonality. It's about a dramatic change in the way fares and routes are structured due to nothing that would make sense in any economics class. But it does make sense in terms of the way the rest of the world is working and where they're traveling and where they're not. And in this year, which is an election year, where there's Brexit, where there's a power of the dollar against European currencies, what a buyer's market there is if you just don't have to fly between Springfield, Illinois, and Chicago, which is more expensive, by the way, than going between Chicago and London. It makes absolutely no sense, but let's not question it. Let's jump on it. All right? You're listening to Peter Greenberg on the CBS Radio Travel Hour. And coming up right now, speaking of uh, new technology... Let's talk about driverless cars and driverless trucks. Uh, What does it mean to you? Where are they going? And will you be sitting, maybe not behind the wheel, but at least sitting in one of these cars or trucks soon? Joining me now from Wired Magazine, Alex Davies. Hey, Alex.
2: Hey, how you doing? Uh,
1: In stuff that you've just written, and I've experienced this uh, working with stories that we've done at CBS back at Carnegie Mellon, Carnegie Mellon, excuse me, and other universities where companies like General Motors and Toyota are doing their tests. We already have driverless cars on the road, we have the Tesla, we have the Google cars being tested, uh, many other companies doing it, but we're not really there yet, are we?
2: No, we're not, and we're at least a a couple of years out. I think what you're seeing are kind of dueling ideas of what autonomy is, um, or what self-driving is. One is the idea that Google's been chasing for a long time, which is that the car that doesn't have a steering wheel or pedals, that never, drives, that, that never needs a human driver. And a lot of other companies are now chasing that. And the best date, the agreed-upon date, roughly, for that tax arrival is like 2020-2021. And then you have what Tesla's doing, which is kind of a more building block technology, where it's giving you bits of autonomy, little by little. But even they're talking about transitioning over to this idea of a car that only drives itself.
1: Well, let me tell you about my car that I drive now, because my car has been equipped with some driver assist uh, features that are quite amazing. We've seen the self-parking cars. Uh, Lexus has that. That's not what I'm driving. I drive an Audi. But what Audi has, it has about 16 sensors on the car that sense out the yellow lines. And if you cross one, the, the steering wheel shakes violently. I have to tell you that saved my life twice when I started to doze at the wheel. As we do sometimes um, which is terrible and scary um, it's got a Doppler system that actually does scare me because it requires <laughs> me to have so much trust in the in the car that even when I've tested it I'm like cringing and what that system is is you can program in one two three different car lengths ahead of you and put the car on cruise control and then all of a sudden if the car ahead of you brakes you brake um, but the real question is, when do you break? Because I can see the car ahead of me braking, and when I see him ahead of me braking, I would normally brake at that moment. But my car waits a little longer to brake, and that really scares the you-know-what out of me. And yet, it continues to work. So the trust factor here for people who are control freaks like me, and maybe even you, Alex, we're not jumping on it right away, but we know we have it.
2: No, and I think that though that trust factor is actually helping being built by these kind of intermittent technologies, these what I call building block technologies. You know, I've tested those cars too, and it's a good way to realize like, oh, like a computer that's always on, that doesn't get drunk or distracted or angry or sleepy. Like that's a nice backup to have. But I think if you want to...
1: I got a great question for you because you meant drunk. You mentioned drunk. How about this idea? And I think this is a great override system that a car... And, and, and some manufacturers have attempted to do this with combination locks or some sort of intuitive system that would know whether or not you're capable of, of driving a car. How about a system that does determine that you're not capable of driving the car and then switches to a special mode where it takes you home in your car at 10 miles an hour?
2: Yeah, or maybe even faster if the system can do it safely. But I think that this is really like the golden idea of what we of what we're looking for in a self-driving car is a car that can, that can drive itself when you need it to if you're, you know, if you're drunk or if you're feeling sleepy or if you want to send your kids to school or you don't want your aging parents to keep driving. Um, that's, kinda, that's the level of mobility that these vehicles offer. But the idea, like we're just still not quite there. We're at least several years of research away from that.
1: Although one place where I think we are there and and the guys from Carnegie Mellon and the other universities were telling me this is that they have already put in applications of the self-driving cars on very restricted um, preordained tracks, if you will, or paths at senior citizen communities or retirement living centers where when someone actually needs the mobility to get to a store or to a recreation area or to an entertainment center, uh, the car knows to take them right there and brings them right back um, with very little uh... interference or, or problem
2: yeah and that's where we're starting to talk about full autonomy this is what the pros call level four autonomy a car that doesn't need a steering wheel or pedals you know it can it's always in charge and it makes sense to think about that starting in limited geographical areas like you just explained like one track that way it's not going to come up to any intersections it doesn't know it's only going to handle and a specific set of variables, and you that's kind of helping the car's inexperience by trimming away the parts that are going to be trickier, and that's what Uber is working on in Pittsburgh in a slightly more aggressive sense. You know Uber has its fleet of self-driving taxis with human engineers at the wheel as backups, roaming the streets of downtown Pittsburgh which seems like a huge amount of work, but what they're doing is they're starting with just a few square miles of territory that these cars can roam, and then as they grow in confidence, as their mapping skills uh, speed up, then they're going to start expanding that area.
1: Well, Alex, I have to ask a stupid question. Why Pittsburgh?
2: So Uber chose Pittsburgh for a couple of reasons. One, you've already touched on, and it's that Pittsburgh is home to Carnegie Mellon which is one of the preeminent robotics programs in the country, and they've got guys there who have been working on self-driving cars for 15 years. You know, way before anybody thought it was anything more than a crazy pipe dream. Pittsburgh is also good in terms of regulation. Pennsylvania has been very lax in terms of how it restricts the testing of these cars, and Pittsburgh mayor is thrilled to have Uber testing there. And then it's also just the specifics of the city itself. The weather is a challenge, which is good practice. You get snow, you get rain, and the streets are kind of that old pre-car network of winding, kind of tight, not as pleasant conditions as Mountain View and Silicon Valley say. So it's got a lot of good conditions going for it.
1: Well, Alex, that brings up the obvious question. What about winter driving? Because so much of it is based on the driver's intuition and reaction to conditions as opposed to just understanding there's snow on the ground.
2: Yeah, and I think you can program a lot of that into the car probably, you know, if it's like take turns this much more slowly, change the braking dynamics so the car slows down a little bit earlier. I think the bigger questions people have around self-driving cars and snow is what the weather conditions can do to the car's sensors. For example, it uses what's called LADAR, that's light detection and ranging. It's kind of the radar equivalent but with little beams of light that the car shoots out if heavy snow is falling, the snow can actually mess those sensors up and they're bringing back bad returns. They don't understand exactly what they're looking at. Same thing for cameras. If you have snow covering the lane lines, the car might not be sure exactly what to do. There are ways to tweak the hardware to get around that and to tweak the software, but that's certainly a challenge that's going to take a bunch more work.
1: We're talking with Alex Davies from Wired Magazine. When we come back, we're going to switch from cars to trucks carrying beer. How about that? Back with more of Peter Greenberg on the CBS Radio Travel Hour in just a second.
0: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Welcome back to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg.
1: Peter Greenberg again. We're back on the CBS Radio Travel Hour. We've been speaking with Alex Davies from Wired Magazine. Fascinating reporting he's done on the world, or I should say the brave new world, of driverless cars. And, of course, coming up with a definition of what a driverless car really is. Because what you were saying, Alex, is that a lot of these cars have guys sitting next to it just to take over in case they screw up, right? So they're not totally driverless.
2: No, in Pittsburgh, Uber's cars definitely have human engineers. Usually they have someone in the behind the wheel and someone also riding shotgun. But that's because it's more of a pilot project. They just don't think the cars are fully ready for prime time yet, so they prefer to have a human driver at the wheel ready to take over and also learning from what the car, where the car has trouble, where the car does well, and that's all then pumped back into the system um, to help advance the technology.
1: You know, when I went to Carnegie Mellon, I was in their Cadillac that they've designed as the driverless car uh, with their chief engineer. He was sitting behind the wheel, but not holding the wheel. I was in the driver's seat, and we were driving at maybe 30 miles an hour. There was a double yellow line, and for reasons we still can't understand, it made a left turn. And thank God he was in the car because he was able to, whoops, there it goes, oh, and back we went. So we are still as advanced as we think we are. I would still say we're somewhat in our infancy.
2: I think that's fair to say. I mean, this is really hard technology. A car that does everything a human does, the way we understand the world, you know, especially when we're being good drivers, paying attention, thinking logically, that's really hard to recreate in a machine. And it's amazing how much progress they have made.
1: Right. A car that does everything human does except show off. <laughs>
2: right. Except uh, show off or fall asleep. Or, yeah. yeah.
1: Exactly. I mean, do you really envision a time And, you know, this goes back to looking at the old covers of Popular Mechanics in the 1930s where they had, you know, George Jetson on the cover um, where and so much of that, by the way, has come true uh, where we will get into a car and we will be conditioned enough to be comfortable enough to sit in a car with with very little override possibilities in terms of no steering wheel, no accelerator pedal, no nothing.
2: I think that we'll get used to it, and that it's not going to be, even not in the next 10 years, there's not going to be some point where everybody says, okay, now we're switching over. I think it's going to be the kind of thing that you're introduced to little by little, kind of the way people were introduced to to planes. At first, air travel was reserved for a specific elite. In this case, it might not be so much financial as it is geographic. Are you in one of the cities that one of these companies has chosen to work with, And have you gotten to ride in one of these cars? And I think as people start to trust it, as the systems prove themselves, then ultimately you're going to start pulling back the need to even have uh, a steering wheel in the car. And ultimately, I think people who really think far in the future say, wait, at some point these things are going to be so much safer than human-driven cars that you're not going to be allowed to drive your own car. It's going to be illegal or your insurance rates are going to go through the roof.
1: Sure. So you'll have special tracks for people who have 1967 Mustangs to do the four on the floor and just make believe they're still driving their own car.
2: Exactly. And people have also said that the car could go the way of the horse. You know, it's just that very few people really use horses for transportation these days, but people enjoy riding them. So they go to play horse-only places where they can enjoy riding their horse. And you could say the same thing about, you know, your 1995 Miata.
1: Right. Well, there's that famous Henry Ford comment that, you know, uh, if, if people really were looking at the development of the car in the old traditional way, they would just ask for faster horses.
2: Right. Right. And so that's why I think you, you're always going to have people holding back. And I occasionally see these studies, oh, like 50 percent of adults, whatever, don't trust self-driving cars. I don't think that's it's really fair to start saying that kind of thing quite yet, because 98 percent probably or more of the people in that survey haven't, been, haven't seen the technology firsthand, haven't climbed into it, haven't experienced what it can do.
1: Hey, let's, let's shift gears, though, because Uber is now doing self-driving trucks. Yeah,
2: and so this is a startup called Auto, O-T-T-O, that Uber bought uh, over the summer. And it's not the only company working on autonomous trucking. Daimler, which owns Mercedes-Benz, is also doing it. Volvo's dabbling in it. And this is actually where you see a use case that's super clear because trucks are big, they, when they get into crashes, it's almost always the person in the passenger car who dies, not the trucker. And they also, because these men and women spend so much time on the road, they're especially prone to being tired or not paying attention. Um, and so if you can get a truck that can drive itself on the highway, which as opposed to driving through downtown Pittsburgh, is a pretty simple area to navigate. You just go straight, you follow the curves in the road, You don't get out of your own lane. You go a safe speed.
1: I think it was somewhat ironic that the first case where they tested the driverless truck for Uber, what were they driving?
2: So they were carrying about 50,000 cans of Budweiser in the the trailer.
1: I love it. Uh, That wasn't lost on me. I love that because, you know, we have precious cargo there. It has to be delivered.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And the nice thing actually about that delivery, so that's a delivery that Auto made um, in Colorado. It started in Colorado Springs and went to Fort Collins, or possibly the other way around. It was about a two-hour drive. And once the truck got on the highway, they're confident enough in the system that the guy who was in the driver's seat just got out and he went to the back. And of course, in this case, he was keeping a watchful eye on the system, ready to spring forward back into the driver's seat. But what Auto is trying to make is a truck that drives itself so confidently on the highway that the driver can put the truck on the road in the middle of the night when it's more efficient, when it's safer for other people, and then he can go catch a few hours of sleep in the back.
1: Yeah, where all the beer is.
2: Exactly.
1: <laughs> Just that I a little that.
2: hole back into the trailer.
1: Yeah, you see. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. I was monitoring and I was supervising it. Oh, yeah. But there are six six packs that are missing. Right. We got. Uh, nah. <laughs> We're speaking to Alex Davies from Wired Magazine. Great reporting on the latest incarnation of the driverless car, the driverless truck, and the technology surrounding it. Obviously, we will be watching this space carefully inside our car with my steering wheel and my gas pedal. Alex Davies, thanks for joining us on the CBS Radio Travel Hour. When we come back, Mike Boyd on what to expect from the next administration in terms of trains, planes, and automobiles in the year 2017, which, as we all know, is literally right around the corner. We'll be back right after this.
0: to play it a new podcast network featuring radio and tv personalities talking business sports tech entertainment and more play it at play.it welcome back to the cbs travel hour with peter greenberg
1: peter greenberg here welcome back to the cbs radio travel hour uh and joining me now someone who is uh someone who knows something a little bit about aviation. Uh, He's been covering it all these years as the president of his own company in Evergreen, Colorado, the Boyd Group. Of course, his name is Mike Boyd. Hey, Mike. How are you, sir? I am fine. So, the election's over. We have a new president. Um, In a lame duck administration in the next two months, you know, what can we expect, if anything, in terms of policy from the, the last remnants of the Obama administration, and what are you expecting a new administration to do in terms of an airline or aviation policy in this country?
0: Well, I don't know. We're working with some Washington organizations trying to explore that right now. The challenge you have is, you, you see there's a lawsuit saying that airlines have, you know, constricted capacity, and, you know, they're, they're trying to price fix. We could make the argument. The problem is airlines are trying to make money. So that's one big argument. But we need real policy. I mean, the last administration came out, in his last days, and came out and said, we're going to improve airports or airline competition by making airlines report on-time performance better. Hello? What does that do for us? So I think it's going to be one of those things where it might be more of a soapbox than it is something that's going to get things done.
1: Well, you know, you mentioned on-time performance, which is one of my, well, decades-old pet peeves because people are always asking me questions that I don't think there are answers for. For example, what's your favorite airline? I can't give them that answer. I can say, well, if you give me the route between two cities, I can tell you the airline I prefer based on a number of factors. But I can't give you one overall favorite airline because I don't think it exists. And then they they get a little bit more specific and they say, well, what's the most on-time airline? And the answer stays the same. Give me the route and I'll tell you who's the most on-time on that route. But if you're talking about the on-time airline and you happen to be on the flight to Cleveland, which is 96% of the time late, it's no longer the on-time airline, right?
0: Right, and the other problem is the, the, the whole system is bad. First of all, when they stay on time, it's really on schedule. It's versus what the airline has planned for that schedule. And some airlines now are adding more minutes to the schedule, which makes sense to me. They're promising the customers something they might be able to deliver. But what people don't know is, this is what drives me nuts with some people in the media and some people in academia, they get these numbers and think they've found the holy grail. Do you know that over half of United Airlines flights today are not operated by United Airlines, and many of them aren't even reported as on-time performance. There are 70 airplanes flying an American's fleet, Air Wisconsin, great operator, but it doesn't report any on-time performance. So what you're looking at is data that's incomplete, and it's based upon what the airlines project, not really a measure of how efficient it is.
1: Okay, I gotta ask a stupid question. Why aren't all airlines required to report on-time performance?
0: Because the current rules now, and again, I'll give credit to the last administration, you know, trying to change this, is means if if you only have 50-seat jets or less, or you're less than 1%, I think it is, of the total traffic, you don't have to report that data. That's the way the system is. It needs to be changed that anything in the brand of United Airlines, anything sold as American Airlines, anything sold as Delta, should be reported in terms of how it performs. That is, That may go into effect, but the problem is we just don't have it because the government doesn't require it.
1: Well, that's got to change. I mean, otherwise... All that information is meaningless because if you're on the Air Wisconsin plane and it's four hours late, um, you know your other flight might be t- you know, leaving on time, but, but you're not on it.
0: Well, and the other problem is some airlines that do report, like SkyWest, which is a fine operator, one of the best in companies in America, they report as SkyWest. You can't go to the phone and book SkyWest because their business is leasing airplanes and crews to five other airlines. But their data is reported separately, and you don't know whether it's American or Alaska or Delta or who. So that has
1: to change as well. All right. So here's my other thing. When I call the airline, you know, it's still the, the big source of confusion among the among the traveling public. It's code sharing. People still don't know who's operating what, what terminal it's going out of. Um, and I've seen some departure boards, and you have too, Mike, where the flight that you're on continues to rotate on the departure board with seven different airlines, but it's the exact same flight
0: we got to break up what code-sharing is. The code-sharing, like I said, between uh, SkyWest and Alaska, that's transparent. That's not a problem. But the code-sharing where uh, you have United and, let's just say, U.S. Air, and when they were partners, showing the same flight number, and so even booking it with different pairs, that was always a problem. It's less than it really shows up to be, but I think it's going to die out, Peter, because these relationships don't deliver what they really thought they could deliver. But in terms of that kind of code sharing where you have two airline brands on the same flight, that's an issue.
1: It is. And the thing is, it leads to great confusion because people don't know what terminal. They don't know what terminal either the one that they're departing from or the one they're arriving at. Uh, it, it, it you know, right now they're at, at, at LaGuardia alone, which is another story we can talk about for weeks, but at LaGuardia alone a lot of the American Airlines flights are going out of the old U.S. Air Terminal and vice versa, but they change them up all the time, and people have no clue where they're going.
0: Well, that's a little different. Well, they, they merged with uh, what with, well, they've got bought by, effectively, U.S. Airways, which had that big they had old terminal down there, originally built for Continental. They had that terminal down there on the whatever site it is by the bay. Then they have their other one on Congores Air, whatever they call it now. That, that, that's more of a outcome of the merger, and they got to put those things together. And it does make a mess if they start moving people, because it's, it's half an hour. I used to walk it as an agent. It's it's a 20-minute walk if you're going to walk it. And then a the bus would probably even be longer.
1: Well, you know, the long walk, the baton death march at certain airports, has not gotten better. It's gotten worse. Miami, uh, JFK, the Delta Airline Terminal 4, oh, my goodness. Uh, it's, and that's a relatively new terminal. Um
0: yeah, I mean, Miami is kind of the Ho Chi Minh Trail with better air conditioning.
1: <laughs> oh, my, Okay. Mike Boyd said that, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Boyd from the Boyd Aviation Group. We're talking to him on the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg. Mike, the real question here is, can we expect in the next year any improvements in full disclosure? I think,
0: what's, honestly, what's going to happen, airlines are going to have to come to the party because they know if they let the government do it, the fats in the fire it won't be good. So I w- I'm thinking they're going to be smart enough to stop going through this knee-jerk stuff about you're re-regulating us, you're re-regulating us, and putting in in systems that when I hit the button to say book, before I hit the button, it says, you realize you're paying you know this amount of money, including all the fees. You realize that. If we do that, we'll be fine. But airlines want to fight that, and I don't know why.
1: Wow. I just hope that, that we have with a new administration and with at least an enlightened approach to the importance of a strong aviation policy that some of this stuff is just basic common sense that they should do.
0: Yeah, I, I, I'll tell you I, another uh, thing that, that, that jumped up is safety. Uh, if you saw that American Airlines issue in Chicago a few weeks ago where people you know, were jumping down the slides with their carry-on baggage. Yeah. I mean that means airlines now have to stop with the fun fun and games and do an allegorical announcement showing games bond and showing ducks and chickens and all that in their their safety announcement. They got to get serious about it and say this is this is serious stuff. Well, and let's think, talk let
1: yeah, let's let's talk about that in a little depth here. Every airline is required every year in order to get certified by the FAA on every aircraft type that they fly to evacuate a fully loaded plane with half the exits blocked in 90 seconds or less. And guess what? Surprise, 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 they all passed the test every time. And, and this, by the way, was uh, same thing with Airbus with the A380. Um, with 881 people on board, they were able to evacuate it in 90 seconds or less. Well, it's easy to do that if you get to pick the cast. I mean, short of picking the cast from Cirque du Soleil, I mean, anybody who, who gets picked to do this usually knows what what's required of them they they know exactly what they're supposed to do when it happens they know they don't take their bags the the whistle goes they jump out and uh, they're given guidance by flight crew members as to which exits are blocked and which aren't it's lovely it's perfect and they all pass the test is this meaningful or not
0: no especially when my, I've done it my wife's done it they get airline employees and they say boom the lights go off everything's dark we have this this go to the gate I mean go to the, the door. That's very different than going to... I'll give you an example. A few years, several years ago, a DC-10 arrived in Denver. The nose wheel collapsed, and those flight attendants went from sitting there in the jump seat, and they got them all off in 90 seconds. If you have... Flight attendants are there for safety, and if they're good at what they do, and most are, they'll get you off in 90 seconds, but this stuff with the test, it it really doesn't mean a whole lot.
1: It doesn't, and in the safety drills that they give you on video, um, very few airlines... Make a point, and some of them don't even mention the idea that you should not take anything with you. Uh, in this latest identified. American Airlines, in this latest American Airlines thing, people stopped to do, you know, cell phone videos. Then people were grabbing the overhead compartments for their bags. I mean, they didn't get off that plane in 90 seconds.
0: No, and they were very fortunate in that regard. And, and again, these are things we learn. I think as of right now, you know, it, it's great. You can make the argument having a funny. A, a, a safety announcement might get people to pay attention, but I think now I think it's time kind of simply to say this is this is the nitty gritty. It's not funny. This is what you do if X happens. Period. And I think that's going to have what we're going to be looking for in the future.
1: Exactly. So, bottom line is, if you're listening to the show, this is not the time. If you have an, a, a survivable incident, like we saw with the British Airways evacuation in September of 2015, when the engine caught fire on takeoff. Uh, in Las Vegas. We saw it with the Asiana incident in San Francisco when the plane hit the uh, the dock on the approach. And we saw it most recently with the American Airlines 767 in Chicago. In all three cases, people are showing up on those emergency slides with their roller boards. You can't do that. And the and the, and the flight attendants uh, are, are are also affected by this. There needs to be a completely different in-flight safety video that makes it very clear that in the event of an emergency, get up, Listen to instructions. Do not wait. Do not grab anything and get, get the you-know-what off the plane.
0: Yeah, I, I think when you really think about it, making the, the, the announcement or the, the presentation funny and clever sort of degrades the importance of what you need to do in case there's an incident.
1: Well, the reason why they made them funny and clever, they'd say, well, this is one way we'll get your attention because people never pay attention to them. Okay, but what's the message that they're giving you? It didn't include the most important thing is do not grab any of your stuff. Get off the plane.
0: I've heard that said, but now we know. I mean, it's a natural thing. I'm taking my laptop with me, babe. Those are the kind of things we have to really emphasize.
1: All right. Now, I want you to be honest with me, Mike. You and I are both on a plane. We have an emergency landing. Half the exits are blocked. There's a fire. Are you taking your laptop, yes or no? No.
0: No. No, I, I can replace the laptop. That's 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 eight hundred bucks. My my life is worth at least
1: nine. <laughs> you got it, Mike Boyd, president of the Boyd Group in Evergreen, Colorado. Thanks for joining us on the CBS Radio Travel Hour, and we'll see everybody next week.